Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Deprescribing of medications has gained traction throughout the past decade as a necessary component of the prescribing continuum and patient care. One important process, the definition of deprescribing remains fluid and many barriers exist with practice implementation, especially in the inpatient setting. Today, we have Dr. Joseph Osborne joining us to discuss how less is more when it comes to deprescribing by introducing concepts of deprescribing, identifying literature applicable to the topic, and discussing barriers and future direction for deprescribing practices. Now, I'd like to start today by evoking a clinical scenario that we as healthcare providers are all too familiar with. Imagine with me that you have a patient presenting to your emergency department, inpatient unit, or, or clinic with a medication list that's approaching 20, 21, 22 different medications. As you talk to the patient and learn a bit more about their knowledge to these medications, they relate to you that they're not 100% sure what they're taking, and of the medications that they do recognize, they can only identify those by the color of their tablet or capsule. After some further probing questions, you recognize that, again, the patient isn't sure of the indication, how they should be taking it, or even who's been prescribing these medications. Frustrated, you look on their chart and recognize that they have a PCP or primary care physician follow-up coming in the next several days, and you think to yourself, well, the primary primary care team, excuse me, is likely, uh, they likely recognize the plan that this patient has in place. Thus, you hold off on intervening in any way, and the patient continues their journey, admission after readmission, clinic visit after clinic visit, and their medication list stays stagnant. Now, we all recognize the situation as being fairly common, and deprescribing is a relatively new tool that's come into our healthcare provider toolbox that we could implement to solve this issue. Now, moreover than this being a uh, simple inconvenience, this is actually a danger to our patients, with data showing that 20% of adults are prescribed greater than or equal to five medications. Additionally, a 2007 study conducted by the VA found a six to 12 times increased uh, chance of a medicated-related risk, such as an adverse drug event, when prescribed greater than or equal to eight medications. And lastly, 50% of adults in our hospital ambulatory or skilled nursing facility environments are on one or more unnecessary drugs. Putting all of these together in the context of polypharmacy, the number of medication a patient takes is the single most important predictor of harm in this setting. Now, before we dive into polypharmacy and deprescribing, I would like to cover some learning objectives I have for us today. We're going to describe the current framework of deprescribing review literature pertinent to deprescribing in the inpatient setting, and lastly, identify facilitators, barriers, and future directions for deprescribing. And I'll start off with a question, and feel free to uh, send your responses into pollev.com slash mayorx, or if you'd like to use your phone, you may text mayorx to 22333. And I'd like to uh, hear from our collective think tank about how we currently define deprescribing. I'm not going to spend a ton of time, but as we see results polling, what I want to recognize here is that even already with the definitions that we're seeing, there's a lack of standardization in our approach. 
each of us may have a slightly different thought about what deprescribing entails, whether that's fully stopping medications, reducing the dose and frequency of these medications. And that's a core point of what I want to focus on as we move through this uh, presentation. And I highlight some of the issues that um, present with implementing deprescribing in the inpatient setting. So let's move into polypharmacy and deprescribing. I'd like to start off first by describing polypharmacy, and this has been commonly accepted as having greater than or equal to five medications on a patient's chart. Now, this is transitioning to more of an appropriate versus inappropriate definition. As, as we all know, with a patient with congestive heart failure and type 2 diabetes, it'd be very easy to have an evidence-based regimen implemented that would be greater than or equal to five medications. There's additionally a lot of burden that comes with polypharmacy, as I mentioned earlier. Patients experiencing polypharmacy have a 20% higher of inpatient hospitalization-related costs than those that do not. Additionally, in 2005, there were 4.3 million healthcare admissions secondary to an adverse drug event, which is proportionately increased by polypharmacy. And lastly, we do see decreased outcomes. Our patients struggle with adherence when polypharmacy is present. There's a decrease in cognitive function in the setting of polypharmacy, increased rate of falls, and worse uh, of all, increased mortality in these patients. I'd like to introduce something that's likely very intuitive to us all, and that's the classic prescribing continuum. And Scott et al. Uh, was an article that, that laid this out, but we effectively have four key components to prescribing medications and how medications enter onto a patient's regimen. And this includes initiation, titration, optimization, and monitoring. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time describing each of these steps as Again, as practicing healthcare professionals, this is an intuitive process to us, but it is important to know the way that medications enter a patient's profile in order for us to make a meaningful change and edit that, uh, that process. What I do want to focus on exactly how does polypharmacy occur, and I've broken this apart into two separate buckets, addition of medications and a failure to remove medications. And let's focus first on that medication addition. One of the most natural and intuitive ways is we have a medical indication. A patient has HEFREF, so we start them on lisinopril and a beta blocker. Additionally, it could be to mitigate an adverse effect. We have a patient that is admitted to our ICU environment. We start three milligrams of melatonin at night, and maybe if that's not helpful, 25 milligrams of quetiapine. Now, you know, I'm not commenting on the, uh, the efficacy of, of these medications, but it, do, it is what we would commonly see in those environments. And then lastly, and more insidiously, we could have over-the-counters, supplements, and then multiple providers that maybe aren't communicating as well with one another, all of these leading to a state where we see polypharmacy flourish. Again, looking at a lack of medication optimization or a failure to deprescribe, we see in the inpatient uh, setting specifically, this is outside of my scope. I have a patient presenting with diabetic ketoacidosis. Why would I spend my time downtrading their gabapentin for neuralgia? Additionally, we don't have enough time. As healthcare professionals, our FTE is stretched quite thin, and we find ourselves having more and more to do with less time to spend on a bonus activity, such as deprescribing. And then lastly, and, and again, very prevalent, is this uncertainty in the benefit versus risk. I've had a patient that's on amlodipine 100 milligrams daily. If I stop this, I'm not sure if I'm going to be worried about hypertension coming back, if they're going to experience reflex tachycardia. There's a lot of issues that can come again uh, that, that could potentially exacerbate by decreasing medications. And both of these uh, two items, both adding and a failure to remove medications, is how polypharmacy continues to grow as a problem as patients continue on their healthcare journey. 
Now, I do want to introduce and kind of transition over to deprescribing here, and there's many situations that deprescribing can occur. I picked on polypharmacy because I think it's an intuitive place to start, but I don't think any of us would be surprised to consider that goals of care in the setting of hospice or palliative care is another excellent reason to pursue deprescribing, along in cost, side effects, patient preference, and all these various items that I have on this list. As healthcare professionals, we are making these clinical decisions throughout this process, and I believe we do a good job of incorporating this in our day-to-day -day activity. However, where we may see some failure or some room to, for improvement is a process that implements that clinical decision, and I'll speak to that in the last third of my presentation. I also want to speak to the various settings that deep prescribing can occur. Again, intuitively, the ambulatory care environment comes to mind as this is where primary care occurs. Additionally, the inpatient environment is rife with opportunity where we as healthcare professionals can implement deep prescribing. And then lastly, skilled nursing facilities or uh, long-term care or additionally environments that we could pursue deep prescribing uh, for our benefit. And I'm going to focus solely on the inpatient setting and all of the evidence and literature that I reviewed will be regarding um, that, that deep prescribing setting and how we can implement to that regard. So let's dive into deep prescribing. This was coined in 2003 by an Australian uh, physician, Dr. Woodward, and he identified five principles that were published in a hospital uh, pharmacy journal. Now again, none of these are very counterintuitive. We're gonna review our current medications. We'll identify what meds we wanna change. We'll make sure to partner and incorporate our patient into that process. We'll come up with a plan. And then lastly, we'll follow up with that plan and continue to support our patients throughout that process. What I do want to spend some time on, however, is how we define deprescribing. And I have several quotes that will appear on this slide. And as you familiarize yourself with these quotes and specifically focus on that bolded um, region, what I want to focus on and uh, compare these against is the definitions that we as an audience came up with earlier. Remember how we couldn't have or we failed to achieve a very defined, um, succinct definition for, for, for deprescribing? We also see that occurring here. Scott et al. focuses specifically on identifying and stopping medications in that risk versus benefit um, analysis. If we focus on Reeve et al.'s def or, uh, definition of deprescribing, we can see the withdrawal of uh, medications in the setting of polypharmacy specifically. So again, it could be that difference in how we're pursuing it and that difference of the setting in which we pursue it. And then lastly, the Briere Research Institute, which I'll speak at length to further in the presentation, has a more global definition that focuses on deprescribing as a planned and supervised process of dose reduction or stopping a medication. I also want to take some time to outline a deprescribing process that one of these authors, Scott et al., had highlighted. And we can see it closely parallels the five principles that Woodward coined back in 2003. The first of this, again, intuitively, is that medication and indication review. We have to make sure that the meds that we have on board align with the disease state that we're trying to treat. Next, we move through that risk versus benefit analysis of do these medications accurately align with, uh, are we willing to accept the risk of these medications with what we're trying to treat? Again, then, medication eligibility for discontinuation. We'll prioritize what medications we want to discontinue. So again, you know, prioritizing quetiapine over the setting of melatonin, I think would be an intuitive choice. And then lastly, we'll implement deprescribing and review those medications as we continue forward. And I wanna highlight that while this deprescribing process is nicely laid out, 
there's no current existing room and how we have our prescribing continuum set up and it begs the question of how exactly do we implement a deprescribing process into this current regimen. Thus enters, as coined by Scott et al., the good prescribing continuum. And what we see here is that our classic prescribing continuum with those four distinct steps is now changed or morphed into a good prescribing continuum that includes deprescribing as one distinct step. Now, personally, I would argue that deprescribing really should span this entire continuum and be considered at each individual step in this process rather than being a you know, one of five steps that we review at. But more importantly than getting caught in the semantics of how we look at the good prescribing continuum, it's apparent and imperative that we implement deprescribing in some form into our standard prescribing process. I would naturally be amiss if I didn't talk about some really exciting algorithms that I discovered as I was researching this topic. So the Briere Research Institute that I mentioned earlier has five evidence-based deprescribing algorithms that are broken apart like a clinical decision tree that healthcare providers can reference as they try to tackle deprescribing. And these uh, encompass the following disease states that I have listed on this, uh, on this slide. And additionally, these are now being endorsed in family practice, uh, Canadian family practice guidelines. So we're seeing more and more evidence-based approaching to deprescribing occur, and then that being implemented in these family practice guidelines that can guide practitioners to, to uh, accurately deprescribe in their respective setting. So with this background behind us, let's move to our first assessment question. Which of the following best describes the framework of deprescribing? A, deprescribing should only be pursued in the setting of the ambulatory care environment. B, deprescribing involves more than just discontinuing medications, and it is only applied to situations in which polypharmacy is present. C, the definition of deprescribing is not fully agreed upon, and it can be integrated into clinical practice at any point throughout the prescribing continuum. D, there are no evidence-based tools to facilitate deprescribing, or E, more than one of the above is true. Perfect, okay, so I would agree with the majority of the audience that C is the correct answer. So A is incorrect is that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we can pursue deprescribing in many environments. B is incorrect uh, is though, uh, additionally recall that while polypharmacy is a, a great reason to implement deprescribing, there are many settings such as goals of care that we could implement this. D is incorrect as I just mentioned some of the algorithms that we can use that are tools. And then E unfortunately would be incorrect because only one of the answers is true. Perfect. With that background behind us, now let's move into some of the literature that supports implementing deprescribing in the inpatient setting. And this was a very exciting uh, section for me to create while I made this presentation. And I want to provide the parameters that I established as I gathered my literature for this presentation. The first is that naturally I focus solely on deprescribing implemented in the inpatient setting. Additionally, I did not require my population to be geriatric for inclusion. However, all three of the studies did wind up being uh, a geriatric population. The first two by design and the last one by chance of the patients that undergo deprescribing. And then lastly, keeping with that motif of having that definition of deprescribing in mind, I identified uh, how the authors defined deprescribing in each one of these studies. So let's introduce them. The first is a 2021 observational retrospective cohort conducted by Brehold et al. The second is a 2021 uh, interventional retrospective case control conducted by Stella Yee et al. And the last study I'll speak to is a 2019 prospective interventional study conducted by Edie et al. Um, in the inpatient setting. 
Now, Brehold et al., as I mentioned, is an observational retrospective cohort uh, that took place at a 300-bed hospital in Indiana with the primary outcome of proportion of hospitalized patients eligible for deprescribing and a secondary outcome of what actual amount of those patients initiated deprescribing. My inclusion criteria was being greater than or equal to 65 years of age and being discharged from one of 10 internal medicine teams. Exclusion criteria was being incarcerated, being deceased during admission, or having care withdrawn during their inpatient stay. And the methods to the study were fairly straightforward. A discharge summary was reviewed by a pharmacist, and the drugs that they were on were compared to one of the deprescribing algorithms that I had mentioned earlier. And four of those specific five deprescribing algorithms were used, proton pump inhibitors, benzodiazepine receptor agonists, including both our um, benzodiazepines, so lorazepam, and then our, also our Z compounds, antipsychotics, and antihyperglycemics. Additionally, the definition of deprescribing uh, per the authors was discontinuing or reducing the dose of a medication. Now, as we look into the population, 267 patients with a mean age of 76 years were observed. A little bit less than half were male, and a slightly more than half were of African-American ethnicity. Again, our mean amount of home medications was around 10, and I have... Uh, in this graph, the breakdown of our number of patients by categories that were in the study. So we see 124 of that 267 patients had a published algorithm available for one of their medications. 92 of those 124 were eligible for deprescribing, and then six of those 92 actually underwent deprescribing um, during the inpatient process. So let's dive into that a little further. I changed gears over here into showing my y-axis as a percentage now, but what we have here is medications broken down by class for any medication, moving through uh, the four different medications that this study looked at. I want to highlight two things. The first is that we see, you know, 74.2% of our patients were eligible for deprescribing, and six and a half of them actually underwent deprescribing. And very interestingly, 88.5% of our patients with a proton pump inhibitor were eligible for deprescribing, and 4% of them had it deprescribed. I would imagine as healthcare professionals, our barrier to discontinuing an over-the-counter may be a little low. So I found this particularly interesting as I reviewed this study. Now, the conclusions that I walked away with after reviewing this was that most of our older hospitalized patients are eligible for deprescribing. Additionally, many of those eligible patients aren't undergoing deprescribing. So, therefore, there is a significant opportunity that we could implement some sort of evidence-based deprescribing process um, in this setting. And that sets, sets the stage for my second study by Stella Yee. This was a 2021 interventional retrospective case control uh, that took place in Georgia at a 950-bed academic medical center. The aims of this study were to determine if pharmacist involvement increased deprescribing, and secondary outcomes are listed, and I'm going to focus specifically on 30-day readmission rate. Inclusion criteria for the study was being greater than or equal to 65 years of age or 75 years of age if they were a medical surgical candidate, and having an HRM or high-risk medication that the authors agreed upon um, on their home medication list. And I'll break those down on the next slide. Exclusion criteria was being in the ICU, being transferred out of the acute care for the elderly, which again I'll describe in our coming slide, and being deceased during admit or having care withdrawn. Stella Yee had defined deprescribing as discontinuation, dose reduction, or frequency reduction for a medication. So they did add in now reducing frequency of medication, which is important as I draw conclusions of this study. 
Let's take a dive into our methods section. So the acute care for the elderly or ACE is a 35 bed central unit on admission um, that is seen by geriatricians, geriatric pharmacists, and other members of the healthcare team that specialize in geriatric care. So this, uh, their chart, a patient's chart was reviewed on admission by a geriatric pharmacist for these HRMs for the case group with no dedicated pharmacist review for our control group. And our high risk medications were defined as acid suppression, including PPIs and uh, histamine 2 receptor antagonists or H2RAs, antipsychotics and insulin therapy. Again, our HRMs were identified through our electronic health record. And something that I wanna draw specific attention to is that this pharmacist has 0.5 FTE allocated to this geriatric role with the other half of their FTE allocated to just general internal medicine functions. The population of this study is as follows. There were 136 patients that were matched in a two to one from control to case with a mean age of 74 and 70 in our case and control groups respectively. I wanna bring attention to this. It was one of the baseline characteristics that was statistically significant. The p-value was 0.02, um, so different from one another uh, statistically. Around half of our patients were male and the majority, great, uh, around 80% were of African-American ethnicity. And again, they had a mean uh, content of 11 to 12 home medications on admission. I have these two graphs representing our population further. And our first graph uh, that we'd see on the left, we can see the number of high-risk medications in our case group being around 56, with 126 uh, medic medications in our control group. Additionally, when we break this down by class, um, I, I wanna draw specific attention to insulin here as it was remarked on at the end of the study. With a higher uh, percentage of insulin being present in our control group on admission, and given our deprescribing definition, this does become um, important uh, with the conclusion that they drew from this study. So let's take a look at that conclusion itself. So the results are, if we look at high-risk high medications that were deprescribed at discharge, we see that in our case group, we have 21.4 of those high-risk medications were deprescribed at discharge, with 25.4% in the control group being deprescribed. So as you can all likely clearly see, this was not statistically significant. And additionally, uh, our control group was our non-pharmacist intervention group, so not uh, boding well for pharmacist intervention of deprescribing. Now the conclusions that I drew from this study are as follows. Deprescribing benefits from having objective data that guides our decision making. If you recall back to when we had that insulin therapy on board, there's a lot of objective data that comes with insulin monitoring. We have blood glucose that we can base our decisions on. And if we incorporate dose reduction or frequency reduction, this could account for why we saw a higher percent of deprescribing in our control group. Additionally, having a standardized approach to deprescribing is essential to a success. And what I mean by that is, we had a geriatric pharmacist that was reviewing these patient charts using their own clinical decision-making that they would relate to the team. There was no agreed upon algorithm. There was no, I, I didn't see any mention in the methods of a process that was put in place. It was simply a pharmacist acknowledging on their own what these medications um, should be discontinued. And then lastly, I want to bring up that FTE allocation to deprescribing really requires some provider-backed workflow to be effective. I think that sometimes there can be the misconception that if we throw FTE at a problem, we'll solve it. And what we see here is that we have half of a dedicated FTE that was not statistically significantly different from our control group. So we have to implement a process in place that really reinforces our pharmacists to be able to um, 
make those deep prescribing interventions that they seek to. And our last study that I'll review today by Edie uh, was a 2019 interventional prospective dual arm unblinded study. This was at a 300 bed hospital uh, in Canada. It was a tertiary care hospital and with the following aims. They sought as their primary outcome the impact of pharmacist led deprescribing rounds with secondary outcomes of 30 day readmission and physician impression of deprescribing rounds. Inclusion criteria consisted of being greater than or equal to 18 years of age, so being an adult, being admitted to and discharged from an internal medicine team, and lastly, having medications on admission. Exclusion criteria was if you didn't have any medications on addition. So they were basically looking for adults with medications and internal medicine, very broad. Now, Edie et al. unfortunately did not describe uh, what the definition of deprescribing was. I assumed that this would be the number of medications that were present on discharge. I'd like to speak to the uh, methods behind this study, and they're a little more involved than the previous two. So first, we'd have our patient that's admitted, let's say, through the emergency department. That patient then would undergo internal medicine consult, and if accepted to the service, they would be randomized to one of two groups. CTU, or clinical teaching unit red, which was our control group, and CTU blue, which was our case group, and they were assigned to these groups throughout the entirety of their hospital stay. Now, something that made this study very unique was that they utilized an author-derived deprescribing guideline. So the authors came together and thought uh, they established specific criteria that would implement deprescribing in this setting. And additionally, our CTU blue group, that's our case group, had deprescribing time set aside on rounds. So typical internal medicine rounds would ensue, followed by dedicated deprescribing time, which the entire team would discuss medications to review and remove. Lastly, on discharge, what was different about the um, CTU blue group was that communication was pursued by a member of the healthcare team with the primary care physician and their community pharmacy about medications to withdraw. So very different in terms of what our standard of care typically involves, which I'll comment on later. Lastly, both of these groups underwent a 30-day follow-up in the setting of that 30-day uh, readmission secondary outcome as well. So the population of Edie et al. is as follows. There were 358 patients with a mean age of 69 years uh, that were randomized uh, for this study. Around half, again, were male, with another uh, majority of them being of African-American ethnicity, and with a mean uh, home medication of around seven and a half medications on their list. And I have here in our graph just the amount of medications by group. So we can see in our control group, we have approximately 1,400 medications. Within our case group, right around 1,250 medications. And knowing this, let's take a look at our results here. So I have on one kind of axis set up both number and group comparing to deprescribing groups. And that first section on the left, I focus on patients with medications. And on that next group on the right, I focus on the number of deprescribed medications. So we see in our control group, we had 71 patients that had medications, or sorry, 71 patients that had deprescribing at discharge in our control group with 111 patients in our case group. This was found to be statistically uh, significantly different between those two groups. Looking at the number of deprescribed medications, we see a 10% increase from our control to case group with 137 in our control group and 244 in our case group, which again, was statistically significantly different between these groups. I also want to speak to one of the secondary outcomes on this, and that was there was no difference 
and 30-day readmission rates in the deprescribing group between those who did and did not undergo deprescribing. And again, to clarify that, I'm looking specifically at my deprescribing group, those who had a medication removed, those who did not. There was no difference in their 30-day readmission rate. So that secondary outcome was not different between those. Another secondary outcome that I think is important to touch upon is physician impression on deprescribing. So this study um, had a survey that went out to all physicians at the end of 22, looking at if they found uh, deprescribing rounds to be beneficial, if they would support these as standard of practice, and then how they felt about implementing deprescribing as standard of care. So all 22 of these physicians actually found deprescribing uh, time on rounds to be beneficial. And again, 91% of those physicians also support implementing deprescribing as a standard of practice in their, uh, their health care pursuit. Curiously, 11 or 50% of these physicians felt the need that they weren't ready to implement deprescribing on their own, and they required further education uh, to perform that process well, which I found very interesting. My conclusions from Edie et al. is that deprescribing, we now see it being successful when we have provider collaboration in the decision-making process. Additionally, dedicated time accompanied by purposeful follow-up with a primary care physician and pharmacy is needed. I believe that part of the success that Edie et al. had in their study was that they not only incorporated uh, prescribers into the deprescribing process, but they uh, specifically reached out and made those touch points with community pharmacy and with the ambulatory care setting as well. And then lastly, we don't work in silos on deprescribing. Physician support of deprescribing is quite strong. Again, as long as we have a collaborative algorithm and dedicated time set aside to have these uh, discussions with our patients and our care teams. This naturally leads me to my next assessment question. Which of the following best summarizes existing literature regarding deprescribing? A, deprescribing has been successfully implemented in many institutions. B, deprescribing struggles with interprofessional buy-in due to an absolute lack of benefit. C, deprescribing can be implemented in all disease states. D, when deprescribing has been purposefully engaged with a multidisciplinary team, it has resulted in decreased medications at discharge without an increase in 30-day readmission. And E, deprescribing cannot be successfully implemented in the inpatient setting. So I would agree with the majority of the audience that D is the correct answer. We're all healthcare professionals, so we know the longest answer is always the correct one, right? Um, so A is incorrect. Uh, is that it, I would say this has not been successfully implemented in many institutions. Um, Stella E, that study is a fantastic example of deprescribing not going over super well. Uh, B, deprescribing struggles with interprofessional buy-in. Again, I would say that that's false in the setting of ED et al.'s information on that physician survey. C is incorrect. Deprescribing cannot be implemented in all disease states in an evidence-based manner. I think there could be some arguments about always being able to apply deprescribing to our patients, but uh, I do think D is a better answer. And then E uh, is certainly false, as we can successfully implement deprescribing in the inpatient setting. We just have to be thoughtful about our approach. Excellent. So with this, I'd like to summarize my thoughts on the deprescribing literature. First, there's a need for deprescribing in the majority of older hospitalized patients. I'd love to extrapolate this to younger patients, but the data that I have and what I review just doesn't support that. Additionally, many patients do not undergo deprescribing in the setting of various barriers, and I'm going to touch on those barriers in the, in the slides Excuse me, coming up. Again, there's no widely accepted algorithm for deprescribing in the inpatient setting. While we have some clinical tools available to us, there is no deprescribing process that we can really implement at this point. 
And then lastly, I think most importantly, standardized workflow, dedicated time, and purposeful communication are needed to implement deprescribing in our inpatient setting. So let's speak to some of these barriers. I thought a natural place to start would be moving through each of the studies, the barriers that they highlighted, and then drawing some definitions and parallels between those. So Brethold et al. had noted that time constraints, prescriber resistance, and then the patient attitudes and beliefs about deprescribing were some of their primary issues in achieving this in the inpatient setting. Additionally, Stella Yee et al. found that a focus on acute illness, prescriber resistance, and the concern for disease state progression, again, were common barriers that they encountered. And lastly, Edie et al. finding that time constraints, a lack of collaboration, again, that concern for disease progression, and a lack of deprescribing evidence were uh, issues that their prescribing team had with deprescribing. Now, when we look at all three of these studies, it's pretty readable what jumps out at us, right? Time, collaboration, and the concern for efficacy or harm were cited over and over again as being our primary barriers to implementing deprescribing in this setting. And these barriers are critical to consider when we start to approach the work of how to build a standardized process that can be implemented in a health system-wide uh, arena for deprescribing. And I'd like to start by commenting on a deprescribing framework that I found um, during my research journey here that breaks apart how we can approach deprescribing into several different factors. Prescriber factors based on a rational and a behavioral component. So our rational component of prescribing being, is there an indication for this? Is this appropriate for their renal function? And that behavioral factor that can be a little bit more difficult considering, um, am I comfortable withdrawing this antipsychotic when my patient's been stable um, from a mental health standpoint for many years now? System-wide factors, again, being an incredibly important um, item that we have to consider. Fortunately, at Mayo Clinic, we're blessed uh, with the resources that we have available to us, but you know, I would invite one to consider the health system that they're in and the various factors, the goals and the culture of their healthcare system and what they're trying to accomplish. And then lastly, incentives. I have to bring up, uh, there's currently no financial incentives per CMS um, or other organizations that I found. Additionally, we, we don't have a, a stick, if you will, in terms of regulatory incentives on if we don't implement deprescribing. So, as more and more evidence is amassed and as we recognize as a healthcare community that this is a problem, I would not be surprised if we saw that change uh, on the horizon in the future. And then lastly and likely most importantly, our patient factors. The biology of the patient. What disease states do they have? What's their pharmacogenomic profile? What's the patient experience been with their medications? Have they had horrible side effects? Has it been really easy for them? And then lastly, that financial burden that's also important to consider for our patients. Um, as you know, cost of medications is naturally a difficult item to consider as well. And all three of these factors establish kind of that baseline pyramid for as we implement deprescribing in that setting. And I'll build upon that now in this slide very briefly. And unfortunately, you know, given the complexity of this, I have to keep it fairly vague per health system. And it's up to one of the health system leaders to fill in those specific components. But we can basically take our three factors here and divide those into barriers and enablers to pursuing deprescribing. And then a second critical step in this process is building a algorithm in which deprescribing can follow. We're all familiar with the decision to deprescribe, the match strike, in which we have a patient who meets the right criteria where this is who we want to deprescribe. Where I think that we need a lot of work on is sheltering and carrying that decision throughout our healthcare system and actually making it survive the journey on discharge and then to the primary care physician office.
And then lastly, what effects and measures are we going to look at? Where's our intervention? What is our intervention uptake going to be? Perhaps hematology and oncology deprescribing works very well within the setting of goals of care, whereas with cardiology, maybe it's a little more difficult. How do we measure our performance? What are our cost savings? As likely with deprescribing, it's going to be very difficult to sell a hard dollar gain on this process, as these are likely more soft dollar generating um, outcomes that we have with our patients. I do want to speak briefly to that decision-making versus process uh, with deprescribing as well. So that decision to deprescribe should be triggered by many clinical factors and facilitated by tools that I've covered earlier. So these could be um, risk factor uh, identification and screening through our electronic health record and through the hard work of our informatics pharmacists, or again, maybe some of those deprescribing algorithms made available by the Breer Research Institute. Additionally, the process of deprescribing takes time and consideration to build as well. We have to have this implemented workflow that allows us to pursue the action and facilitate that decision to deprescribe, and that needs to be found by finding your enablers and supporters within your healthcare system. And again, these approaches could be maybe those collaborative uh, deprescribing rounds during internal medicine, for example. Or again, whatever works in your healthcare institution where you can facilitate this decision to move through in its entirety. I do want to very briefly bring up outcomes of interest. There's many here. Uh, the three that really resonated with me were decreasing the medication burden of our patients, having no or lessening the impact on readmission, and naturally what we're all here for as healthcare professionals, bettering our patient outcomes. Again, in the interest of time, I'm not going to take a deep dive into this resources slide. There's a menagerie of resources available to one in terms of empowering themselves, their healthcare team, and their patients to deprescribing. If you're interested in this, please do not hesitate to reach out to me after this presentation, um, and I would love to share these with you and discuss this more. And I didn't want to leave uh, everyone empty-handed here, so I do have some proposed solutions uh, to implementing this, right? The first is implementing standardized deprescribing tools. Let's focus on commonly prescribed medications. It could be utilizing those Briere Research Institute algorithms and removal of not needed medications initiated from order sets. Additionally, interprofessional collaboration regarding the, the decision to deprescribe is critical. If we have allocated pharmacist time coupled with an agreed upon process, we've seen that be successful in the literature. And then lastly, increasing communication between our primary care physician and hospitalist teams. I think documenting deprescribing intentions via our EHR is essential, and leveraging and utilizing technology to our benefit of implementing, excuse me, deprescribing as a best practice has to be considered in this setting. So where are we at at Mayo? In our inpatient process, there were three items that I found that really speak to deprescribing. Naturally, order review, as we as pharmacists and other healthcare professionals look through medications. Transfer review, and that would be if a patient steps down from the ICU to a different unit, uh, it prompts a transfer review for our pharmacists to review their medications that they're on. And then naturally, you know, the classic admission and discharge uh, review process as well. I also reached out to a couple of ambulatory care pharmacists and found what they're up to. Uh, it includes medication management services, incorporating the patient in a shared decision-making process, and lastly, very exciting, uh, a deprescribing referral in which physicians will refer patients to have deprescribing services pursued. This brings me to my last assessment question. Which of the following best summarizes future directions for deprescribing implementation in the inpatient setting? A, there are many factors to consider when implementing deprescribing in the inpatient setting, and there is no standardized approach established. 
B, the deprescribing process can be established in the inpatient environment separate from other healthcare environments. C, an implementable deprescribing framework exists in which health system leaders may pilot programs. And D, the clinical decision to deprescribe is the primary factor in the success of that process. Now again, in the interest of time, I'm gonna be a little quick with this question here. Um, I do agree with the majority of the audience that A is correct. I would say that B uh, is incorrect. Again, we don't need to operate, in fact, we shouldn't be operating in silos, um, and, and we should be incorporating that ambulatory care perspective as well. C is inc incorrect in which uh, there is not an implementable framework that exists currently. That's something that has to be built. And then D, the decision to deprescribe is a primary factor, but it also needs to be accompanied by that process to deprescribe as well. All in all, this is what I have as my summary for deprescribing. First, there's conflicting literature on what our outcomes are with deprescribing as it stands. Secondly, we do have a handful of guideline-endorsed deprescribing algorithms that are available to uh, care providers. And then third, no current standardized approach is currently being implemented regarding deprescribing in these multitude of settings. There's a lot of different factors to consider, and we don't see any sort of regulatory or financial incentive at this point. Now I wanna take us back here to our patient at the beginning of the presentation. And my hope is, is that if we were able to successfully implement deprescribing, we would see that list of 20 medications maybe decrease to 18, maybe over the course of a couple of years decrease to 16, whatever's appropriate for that patient. And in the spirit of putting the needs of the patient first, we're able to better empower our patients and feel more rewarded as healthcare providers as we provide this valuable service of deprescribing um, for our communities. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.